1: Yesteryear, Ballyhoo. Review. Hey, what's all this ballyhoo about you making a new picture? That's right, Phil. I started working on it this week. Well, here. I ain't going to see it. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. The picture isn't made yet, and already it's gross $10. (laughs) But uh <laughs> but I, uh, I must tell Alexander Corder about that. Um, but I wouldn't jump to a conclusion, Phil. You see, Carol Lombard is in it, and Lubitsch is the director. Not Ernest Lubitsch. No, not Ernest. The name is Ernst. Ernst. <laughs> <laughs> Look at his pivot tooth go around. <laughs> Well, if it stops on the red, you win. You know, I can go along with a gag. Believe me. Say, Mr. Benny. Yeah? Is that the same Mr. Lubitsch that directed Marlene Dietrich and Margaret Sullivan and Maurice Chevalier? Yes, sir. And Claudette Colbert and Gary Cooper and Greta Garbo? Yup, and now he's directing me. Is he slipping? No. He's not slipping The trouble with this gang You're all too close to me You don't realize I'm a good actor Say, Jackson How'd you ever land A big director like that? You mean Lubitsch? Jack held him over The Empire State Building Until he signed the contract Oh, stop To hear you talk You'd think I was The strongest guy in the world Now, let's cut out this nonsense And go on with the program
2: Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo goes back to 1942, the same year as Casablanca, where we find a director of light, sophisticated, and innuendo laden comedies daring to take on the Nazi menace. How could he get away with something so audacious? How could he create something so bold and daring? And how could he do it with the help of Carol Lombard and Jack Benny? Well, we shall find out as we enter the daring adventures of Poland's premier theater troupe in war-torn Warsaw with Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds.
1: an outstanding motion picture, an exciting romantic comedy keyed to an ever-mounting tempo of suspense. To Be or Not To Be brings you the screen's beloved star, Carol Lombard, in the kind of role that won her the applause of millions. And, that mirthmaker maker of the movies, that Casanova of the radio, your favorite comedian, Jack Benny, in something entirely new, something surprisingly different, and it's hilarious all the way. To Be or Not To Be is a swift-moving comedy-melodrama enriched by the magic that sparkles in every Ernst Lubitsch production. It's the picture everyone will want to see.
2: Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1942, Ernst Lubitsch released onto the world To Be or Not to Be, a bold and daring dark comedy that addressed the Nazi menace by humanizing the enemy and thus allowing us to see that they are flawed and can be conquered. Utilizing the performances of Carol Lombard and Jack Benny, Lubitsch creates a wonderful farce mixed with daring wartime thriller thriller elements that create a very confusing for its time viewing but retroactively amazing watch. But we cannot talk about this movie alone and we certainly can't talk about it with somebody who's seen the movie before countless of times like I have because of one particular star. We have to bring in somebody who's affection for Carol Lombard or screwball comedy or Ernst Lubitsch knows no bounds except for he had not seen this movie until recently. And what's more, he is a Cary Grant aficionado, a B- Emily Blunt expert and a Kate Blanchett tour, who can be heard every week on the real nerds podcast. Please welcome back to the program, Ryan Frost.
0: Zach, 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 Zach. <laughs> <laughs> that was my attempt at Cary Grant as, Judy, Judy, Judy. 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 (laughs) I think, not going to lie, you succeeded. (laughs) One of the funniest stories in um, Evenings with Cary Grant is he talks about that Mm -hmm. and how he never actually said that. Because someone asked him in in the audience, they said, what's the story behind Judy, Judy, Judy? And he said, "I've, I've never said that. And I forget who he, I think he said Tony Curtis probably does the best impression of him. Mm -hmm. Um, which if you've seen some like it hot, he definitely is playing Cary Grant, uh, (laughs) in some like it hot at the point at one point. Um, but I can't remember if he says it was, uh, uh, Tony Curtis or, uh, man, I can't remember, but he said that he never said that. And then it's like one of the few surviving audio clips from the evening with Cary Grant. And he's like, Judy, 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 Judy. And it's, (laughs) It's really funny, um, and I'm guessing I'm guessing it's a reference to uh, Judy Garland. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, I love me some Cary Grant. I just finished my third biography on him,
2: mm-hmm. and which uh, tell the people the title of that so they can find it out because
0: uh, it's uh, called Cary Grant: A uh, Brilliant Disguise. It's by Scott Eyman, who wrote a uh, biography on John Wayne as well,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it's a really actually it's a pretty good biography if you want to read a pretty great Cary Grant biography, this is it Um, because this, the title um, it keeps on coming back in throughout the biography Mm -hmm. where um, Cary Grant is the disguise uh, behind Archie Leach. Right. And, and, and uh, Cary himself even said that he, towards the end of his life, he didn't know where Archie Leach began and Cary Grant ended because in a lot of ways he was always Archie Leach. But in many other ways he was always Cary Grant. And uh, yeah. it delves into how people perceived him and through his own uh masking, I guess, of who Archie Leach was, because you know, he has a great Cockney accent and he doesn't really use it except in um Sylvia Scarlet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, which he's he's brilliant in. Um but you know, he has that kind of mid Atlantic accent that he I don't know if he invented it but it's definitely unique I think and it's which is, mainly
2: relegated to him when we think about it today certainly
0: Yeah but when you when you watch movies from the 40s like to be or not to be um it, it's kind of nice because Carol Lombard never had it and uh, Jack Benny is what I like about watching the movie is I can close my eyes and I can hear Jack Benny's radio plays going through my head because <laughs> I think cuz I think his voice is so unique and his cadence and his timing is mm-hmm. so unique um and I- i'm sure that's why he is extremely popular uh to this day <laughs> and i know he's your favorite so yeah it's uh...
2: well, i will i will promise you this because um full disclosure to the audience i'm recording this the day after the <laughs> virtual jack Benny convention that i <laughs> sat for in sat for several days uh recording and archiving um and uh i'm not Bennyed out by any stretch i'll never be bennied out but to be or not to be, one of the reasons I asked you to watch it, like, I'm, actually, there's a little history behind this. So when I started joining the Real Nerds podcast a little bit more full time when I um, was still trying to you know, pull myself together from being an alcoholic mess, um, I remember pitching this to you as a film that you would like, not just because of wanting to spread the word of Jack Benny, but this is a film that has a lot of like historical baggage to it not just from the topic in the film, but also its stars. And also, there's so much more than Benny here, even though Benny, I think, is... It's funny because he's the main character in the film. And we'll talk about why the billing is the way it is. But he's um, he's one of many people in this film that contribute to why it works as, as much as it does. Um, so I'll ask... Uh, a question within this. So one of the reasons, another reason that I want Ryan on this is Ryan has been really good at coming aboard this show, whether it's on Shamley or here to talk about world war two in regards to film. Um, I guess that, I guess in a sense, Ryan, you're, you're also becoming an expert on world war two era cinema (laughs) slowly, but I'll take it slowly, but surely because like actually this extended back to when we reviewed happy death day to you and, um, or you did where we talked about Destination Tokyo and um, across the Pacific, or no, I, um, yeah, across the Pacific. Where we're talking about the portrayals of Japanese Americans in those films and how you know, obviously, there's there's a there's a double edged sword to it of like the folks of the time making fun of the enemy, but you even in its time, it's still offensive and it's certainly offensive today, and it's hard to tell people to watch those movies without saying it in advance. Like just as a heads up, there is some stereotypical imagery in here that can be rather disturbing. Um, and and you have experience with this, obviously with Disney cartoons because Disney cartoons and Warner brothers cartoons have um, ha- are riddled with this in the Warriors as well. Um, the one thing I will say though, about, the world war two era films that we talked about is like, there's a, there's a progression, uh, that we talked about in shamley in regards to like the call to war and the warning of war. And what's interesting about to be or not to be is that it's made, uh, after the invasion of Poland, but, um, made and basically completed almost just before, uh, the Pearl Harbor is bombed and on December 7th, 1941. So, this film suffers from unlike the star of this film, Jack Benny. This film suffers from bad timing by the time it's released, <laughs> uh, as uh, as evidenced by the subject at hand. Um, so I'll ask I'll ask you this, Ryan. After giving that context and pre setup, um, when you watched the movie the first time, this first time, like, what was your immediate reaction? Was it laughter, or did you find yourself pausing at any point at the humor of it?
0: No, actually, not pausing at all. Actually, I thought it was uh, really well done. I think uh, this has become a favorite World War II era film of mine, in so much that it has, like, um, ironically, the trappings of a Mel Brooks film. Way before a Mel Brooks film was a Mel Brooks film. Yep. Um, and that being, it opens with kind of you know a newsreel. Thing where it's like poland 1939 and <laughs> i mean i'm exaggerating the narrator yep um but you know they talk about how hitler is a vegetarian so what is he doing at a delicatessen
2: <laughs> and uh what he does are strict to his diet sometimes he swallows whole countries <laughs> yeah um
0: and then you find out it's this great polish actor um and then it cuts right to a scene of the Nazis and they're, you know, planning something, and then Hitler comes in, and it's all on Hitler, and then he's like, Heil myself. And then they go, Cut, that's not in the script. What are you doing? I go, <laughs> I, 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 right then I knew that I was totally on board with this film because it it's very fascinating to think of how people perceived Nazis while the Nazis were a power.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And for um, the makers of the film and Jack Benny, in particular, to play a Nazi, I think is says a lot into itself.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And when I say playing a Nazi, he's an actor playing a Nazi. He's
2: really not a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, he's a good pole and he loves his country and he loves his slippers.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but what's fascinating about this film, too, is uh, Carol Lombard is like the straight person in the movie.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah. But she her
0: range is incredible, because if you go from My Man Godfrey or Supernatural or Nothing Sacred
2: uh, 20th century, her, even, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, her range. And, you know, you really kind of got me on the Lombard uh, train mm-hmm. um, through My Man Godfrey. And she's just one of those people that are actors that when they're on screen, there's something about them that you just adore and you just love and that she plays. <laughs> the straight person and she's the facilitator for not only um, Jack Benny, but Robert Stack and um, the other evil Nazis in the film. Uh, But her, her role is so important because she's leading the underground and um, she has it. I don't know. It's just, it's really cool to see her also not only be really funny in other movies, but also um, give the spotlight to other people and prop them up.
2: Yeah. There's actually, and it, and actually it's, it's interesting when you consider where Lombard and Benny are at this point, but like Lombard is a kind in a weird way is kind of doing what Jack did on his radio show for all those years, yeah. which is Jack. I mean, like, I mean, this has been, I've been talking about this all weekend, so it's all stuck in my head so wonderfully, uh, Jack's the one of the reasons Jack's radio show was as successful as it was, and the same with television, is, is that Jack didn't really have jokes on the show. He really relied on his supporting players, and um, he worshipped his writers and treated them with more respect than any comic of his era. And he's a comic in the respect that he... Uh, he he plays off of reaction and uh, befuddlement and and he creates a comic persona that manages to translate these faults and these frailties that we all possess. And what's interesting about To Be or Not To Be is that Lombard portrays a lot of faults and frailties to support the main plot of the film and to carry Benny as a comic actor. And there's actually a behind-the-scenes reason why this happens, and it's also a testament to Lombard's generosity and her just good nature. And we're gonna kind of talk about it, but I think we need to address the Lubitsch in the room <laughs> because <laughs> Mr. L- Ernst Lubitsch is obviously one of the masters when it comes to comedy, let alone filmmaking. Period. Um, you know, just to let's go off the let's go off the top list of the films that we always talk about and worship: Trouble in Paradise, Design for a Living. Ninochka, The Shop Around the Corner, and Heaven Can Wait. This is a man who knew how to work with innuendo, comedies of man- comedy of manners, subject material. He would provide the Lubitsch touch, which was a way of providing lightheartedness and frivolity uh, to taboo subject matter, primarily concerned when it came to sex. Um, a lot of his... Uh, origins with this start actually being inspired by charlie chaplin but he is born in 1892 in berlin he's the uh son of simon Lubitsch, a taylor um and his uh, his family was um ashkenazi, ashkenazi jewish um his father was born in grondo in the russian empire which is now belraz and um uh, his mother was from Riesen out of Berlin. I hope I'm saying that right. Riesen. Um, and Lubitsch actually has a lot of connotation with Shakespeare because when he tried out for the Max Reinhardt Deutsch Theater, um, his uh, his monologue that he used as the audition was Shylock's speech from The Merchant of Venice that we hear Felix Breisart give in the movie. Um, and a lot of the criterion... Uh, commentary on this film does allude to the fact that Bressart's character Greenberg is very much a uh, a stand-in for Lubitsch, um, or at least an approximation of it. Whether or not Lubitsch is intending this directly is not, you know, completely like f- foolproof. Obviously, I don't have Ernst here with me to <laughs> to to ask the. I'd love to, though, but we'd be talking about other things just beyond this one thing. We'd be talking about a whole slew of things, um, and. He makes his debut as an actor in a movie called The Ideal Wife, and then he starts moving in towards directing. He ends up becoming the German Cecil B. DeMille because he would put up films that had immense grand scale. Um, uh, amongst them being things like The Loves of the Fair, uh, The Loves of Pharaoh, um, and around the time that he's making these epics, he sees Charlie Chaplin's movie Woman in Paris. Um, and this apparently inspired him to start moving towards these bedroom dramas. That's a movie where he, he utilizes some economic storytelling with pure cinema in order to communicate that there's been an infidelity or a, you know a, 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 an affair. And Lubitsch kind of sees this and goes like, what if I just made it throughout the entire movie? What if a symbol... Was uh, just reused and reused and reused to make the audience laugh the ass off, and that's pretty much what the Lubitsch touch ends up being a part of. In addition to the idea of touching lightly on taboo subject matter, is using and creating and using these symbols, whether through props, gestures, or words, in order to, you know, keep a momentum and a rhythm going throughout the movie. And I, I'm sure you noticed it, Ryan there's a lot of stuff that keeps getting repeated throughout this movie to great comic effect. And arguably I don't think it follows the rule of three that I'm so fond of where the Coen brothers do this, where the Coen brothers will say something three times and it gets funnier each time, but they stop at three. <laughs> um, and, uh, and and in here we have them repeating throughout and there's like these several different moments where uh, the the person who did the commentary on the criterion points these things out and then you can kind of, Go off and see for yourself where it works and doesn't work for you, for you as a viewer. But Lubitsch ends up going to Hollywood um, in 1922, and he's contracted by Mary Pickford. He directs Pickford in Rosita, um, and then once he settles in there, he starts going into sophisticated comedies like The Marriage Circle, Lady Windermere's Fan, and So This Is Paris, um, but these and these were works he did with Warner Brothers under a six-picture contract, but they were only marginally profitable. And so um, the, the contract kind of goes away, and MGM and Paramount buy out the remainder of his contract. And so his first film for MGM is The Student Prince in Old Heidelberg. Um, it's, a, it's, it's well regarded, but it lost money. Then The Patriot, produced by Paramount, earned him his first Academy Award nomination for Best Directing. He um his first sound film ends up being The Love Parade with Marie Chevalier, uh the uh renowned singer and the number 1 star at Paramount with the number 2 being Some Lovable Mox Brothers. Um and then he ends up working with a guy named Sam Rafelson for a movie called Trouble in Paradise. Um and uh the film has been described as truly amoral <laughs> by David Thompson, a critic of the era. Um but it was popular with critics and audiences overall. Um And this was a project made before the production code. Now, something to keep in mind with Lubitsch, especially with this film we're talking about today, Lubitsch found a way to get around the censors. And in fact, the censors ended up supporting him more often than not because he was providing a lightness to it without referring to things directly. It's called innuendo. And Lubitsch found a way to circumvent a lot of controversy and frustration um, that the censors would have had by just alluding to things in a way that it couldn't be taken so seriously because it's too silly to be taken seriously. And that's kind of how Lubitsch got away with a lot of this stuff. Um, and in 1939, he makes arguably one of the, one of his huge triumphs with Nanotchka, where the selling point of the movie is Garbo laughs. Nanotchka is a movie about communism that doesn't denounce communism. And it's somehow Ryan, a box office hit in America, which is unfathomable considering how we how we view communism today even. You're just like, how how does this work? There's a line in that movie where Garbo uh, refers to the fact that there's been a sweeping of, you know, disloyal Russians and he, she goes, there'll be fewer but better Russians, which is a which is a gobsmack line when you hear it in the movie. Um, but it's played to the fact that they are kind of making fun of her serious demeanor as a like basically a blank face communist and the whole one of the big points of the movie is not talking about communism and denouncing it it's about making Greta Garbo's character less strict and serious that's like the selling point so i think that's kind of how you get away with that but to get us into the production before we talk about this movie um Lubitsch found himself under contract um and or under in, in partnership with an independent production uh producer named Sol Lesser um, where soul lesser teamed up with United Artists to distribute movies um, so around this time Ryan and I have talked about this before on the show um, the studios were re- were being sought after by Congress and the government for antitrust um, which they certainly were guilty of <laughs> because <laughs> it's monopolizing um, but, Around the time after 1939 into 1940, one thing that happens in 1939 is something like Stagecoach happens, where an independent production company gets a huge hit on their hands, and suddenly these independent producers are able to have the resources to make these movies and look to the studios primarily for distribution. Now, this isn't unheard of. This is what happens when you go to a film festival as a studio and you acquire a a film and then put it out for release. We don't do that as much anymore because it's not the same economic market or, um, audience audience, uh, uh like they're not clamoring for it the way they were in the nineties, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, you know, like nobody's, nobody's going to necessarily go on mass to go see clerks, like, <laughs> uh, like in a movie theater, like you might be waiting for it on VOD now. Um, but, um, One of the films he makes is That Uncertain Feeling, which is very much a bomb. Um, And it's also a movie that because it was such a bomb, nobody bothered to renew the copyright. And so it fell into public domain. So most folks, when they see a Lubitsch movie, they're going to be seeing That Uncertain Feeling first. And it's a movie with Merle Oberon Oberon and uh, Melvin Douglas and Burgess Meredith. Um, And I think it's a fine film, uh, but it's... um, uh, it's not my favorite Lubitsch film by any stretch. Obviously the one we're talking about is my favorite Lubitsch. So Lubitsch kind of grows frustrated with lesser and he grows tired of independent filmmaking. He's like, I want the resources of a studio. I want to be back in. I want to be with the action is I want to, I want to be, I want, I want to be on a set and the call action and then have, you know, a bunch of wearing bells and people going lunch, everybody. And then, you know, I go walking around and, Oh, there's Daffy duck at the studio. Isn't this wonderful magic movie land? Um, and so he goes to 20th Century Fox but he has one more commitment to United Artists to release a picture and that's how to be or not to be ends up becoming a reality. Now Lubitsch had already seen The Great Dictator at this point and I know Ryan that you've seen The Great Dictator at least once in your life because it's it's arguably Chaplin's masterpiece especially when it comes to sound, not necessarily with the silent films. Obviously there's a <laughs> take your pick. <laughs> like there's too, there's too many Chaplin films to, to go from, but the great dictator, it, it deserves an episode on its own, which I might actually just have you and another person come in and do a big discussion on that. But uh, to be or not to, or, uh, the great dictator is the first film really to make fun of the Nazi menace. and Chaplin, obviously he, he did not put up with, you know, the, 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 the kowtowing around Hitler at the time. Um, and when he makes this movie, uh, it inspires a lot of people, not the least of which, um, as well as upsetting people, obviously, because this is one of many films that uh, J. Edgar Hoover pointed to as reasons that Charlie Chaplin was a subversive figure and needed to be booted out of the country. <laughs> Um, but uh, amongst the people that this film inspires are Lubitsch and Lombard and Lombard having watched this film saw the value in participating in a film that bold and that daring as the great dictator and Lubitsch not only saw this he sought out to make a film such as this him being a Jewish immigrant, he sets about creating a satire and a farce on not just the Nazis, but actors and show business and theater. Um, and most of Lubitsch's films are based on other properties, uh, whether they are plays, operettas, or novels. This is the first, what really the only film that he does as a director that is lifted from his own brain. Um, a lot of the credited writers on this film or working on this project immediately point to the fact that well, we kind of just took dictation from uh, from Lubitsch. This is his story. And the credited Myers on this are Mel Lengel L- Lengiel, um, who wrote the story initially, like the initial pitch. And then Edwin Eustace Meyer, uh, who he's a figure, Ryan, that you would be familiar with because he wrote the screenplay for a Cary Grant movie called 30 Day Princess. Um, and oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, we did, which is a... Which a which is a movie that I have not seen, but you have. What what are you, actually what are your thoughts on Thirty Day Princess? Before we uh,
0: it's it? okay. I mean, it's a really early Grant. I think maybe it's a second, third, fourth, fifth. It's thirty-four, his, so yeah. One of his, I call it Paramount sevens, where he signed a seven-picture <laughs> deal with Paramount, and they uh, gave him nothing to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there he, he, you can tell he's one of those actors that you could tell was going to do something big. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's OK. It's this princess comes to the United States and gets sick and they have a body double stand in for her. And Grant takes her around town and stuff. So,
2: yeah, it's not knowing
0: that she's the body double. Yeah. Or,
2: and and that's one of those reasons why when I see this and it's not to say that Edwin Justus Mayer was anything short of a good writer because he was a playwright um, of great renown. Um, working uh, working in the uh, uh, working in New York but he according to the commentary I found this, this is a comparison that I actually will back up is that he seems like he's more or less a Barton Fink character where he's a man from working on Broadway that is brought over to Hollywood and doesn't cut it as a writer for Hollywood um, and if anybody's watched the movie Barton Fink you know exactly what I'm talking about but obviously Edwin Justice Meyer doesn't end up <laughs> burning down a hotel with John Goodman running through it. (laughs) Although that's kind of the dream for all writers period is to have John Goodman running down a hallway going, I'll show you the light of the way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, the life of the mind. I'll show you the life of the mind and then just (laughs) find out he's a guy who kills people and beheads them. (laughs) Um, uh, It's a great movie. Uh, Barton Fink's wonderful. It's out of its goddamn mind. I love it. Um, but so uh, so they get this film structured and prepared. The role of Joseph Tora is written specifically for Jack. Jack at this point, and I'm not going to do a full dissertation like I did this weekend um, uh, or the one that I did with Laura Leibowitz, but like, needless to say, Jack was not a film actor really at this point. He had been in several films. Um, he was more or less relegated to playing offshoots of his radio persona um, or his vaudeville persona, but nothing is ever asking him to act. Nothing is ever asking him to move beyond his boundaries. Most directors who directed Jack at this point were saying, "Well, Jack, you know what you're doing. You know more about comedy than I do, so just roll with it." And Jack's Jack's looking at these directors, going, "Like, but I want to act. I want to. I want you to direct me. Do you not know how to do your job? Like, <laughs> it's like Ryan, like you, you." you and Brad have worked together. You're you've been directed by Brad. I mean, yeah. Yeah. When you, when you receive direction from Brad, you do take it seriously. Like you're not, you're not just doing everything yourself. We know that you can ad lib, but you don't like you rely yeah. on your director like anybody else. Like, <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm also pain in the ass to direct.
2: Right. Well, okay. I'm, I'm mainly yeah. using it as this point of just like, it would be it would, it would be uh, unrespo- irresponsible of Brad to just go like, well, Ryan, you know everything about being, uh, being yes. a comedian. Uh,
0: <laughs> I rely on Brad to tell me where to be and blocking and pacing. Mm-hmm. Um, I make up uh, scripts sometimes, don't feel natural sometimes to me. Mm-hmm. So when I read a line, sometimes I'll read it the same way or um, I'll add stuff, which R- sometimes makes Brad angry. But then... <laughs> But then he ends up using it in his short films and something, like, haha, I was yeah. right as an actor.
2: But he does uh, direct you. Like he does oh, yeah, direct yeah, yeah. you. I'm
0: not I'm not undirectable.
2: <laughs> oh, that's a Brian De Palma film. I want the undirectables. <laughs> 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 Get the most difficult actors in Hollywood. <laughs> um But um so Jack is not being directed. He's basically being told, like, look, you know everything. Like the most The most successful of his films really up to this point are his works with Mark Sandrich, which are basically lifting off the Benny radio persona directly. And the year before Charlie's aunt, which was the number eight all time gross. It was the number eight most grossing film of 1941. It was the eighth highest grossing. So Jack and Dr. Kathy Fuller Seeley, who I had on my panel and I'm going to be having on this show alluded to the fact as that we've been doing research and she Pulled her research and let me know that Jack was voted as one of the number one, like among the top box office male leads in this time because of things like Charlie's aunt, Buck Benny rides again and even love thy neighbor where people wanted to see Jack on screen. This wasn't like something that the audience wasn't clamoring for. They were, but the studios didn't know what to do. Enter Lubitsch. Lubitsch writes this role for Jack. Jack is thrilled to be doing this but he is you know he's concerned and you know Lubitsch does a couple of things one is he tells him Jack you're not an ac- you're not a comedian and Jack just perks up and lubich goes you're a- you're an actor playing a- the role of a comedian but you're not a comedian and Jack <laughs> suddenly a light bulb hits Jack because it's kind of true Jack is a comedian however he's not a traditional comedian a lot of what Jack has to do with his comedy is performance-based. So Jack is basically being given the go-ahead to do the persona f- through, the, through the guidance of Lubitsch. And Lubitsch does something with his actors that is not advisable when it comes to directing, but it can work. You just should, probably shouldn't do it. Lubitsch would act out what he wanted his actors to do for them directly. like He would like recreate it for them and say, now do that. And Jack found this extremely helpful because Jack had not been directed prior to this. So, like, Jack doesn't know that this isn't traditional directing, but he's never had a good example of somebody knowing how to direct him, period. So, this is why the role works for him. And then, they were originally going to have Miriam Hopkins in this movie, and it was going to be kind of like a comeback role for her, Um, but she didn't like the script, and also she and Benny didn't get along, which... Jack Benny was considered one of the nicest men in Hollywood, Ryan. So if Miriam, if he didn't get along with Miriam Hopkins, what does that say about Miriam Hopkins? (laughs) Yeah, I don't
0: know. It's, uh, (laughs) it's weird that someone turned down the script too, because it seems like it kind of is an actor's movie,
2: but we have to remember too. And actually, um, I'll, I'll, I'll do a little humble brag here. I had Leonard Malton on this weekend. Um, for the Benny panel. And he said something very, very uh, astute when I was, you know, praising to be or not to be and denouncing Bosley Crowther's review. He said, well, you know, we don't know how we would have reacted at the time to a film making fun of the Nazis the way this movie does. And it was true. It's very true. Props to one Malton for providing that insight because really realistically any People who read this script were very concerned. Sam Rafelson, who did adaptations with Lubitsch prior, said, I can't in good conscience do this. This script is too distasteful. So, he didn't even, so that's why he brings on people like Edwin Eustace Mayer to do it, because somebody like Rafelson, who is supremely talented, doesn't feel comfortable with this. And in fact, a lot of people didn't feel comfortable with this, as we're going to find out, not just necessarily the script and the subject matter, but also certain lines in the movie. Um, but enter Lombard. Now Lombard, as we said before, had already been like getting into this kind of material, but she had been married to Clark Gable at this point. Um, and the, the one film she did prior to this film was they knew what they wanted, which is a film with Charles Lawton. Um, and Lombard also was eager to win an Academy award by that point too. So, um, she tries to make serious films It doesn't really work out for in the in the 40s and whatnot. And so she uh, she accepts the the whole notion that like my name doesn't sell tickets to serious pictures so she returns to comedy with Mr. and Mrs. Smith in 1941 directed by me. And I I knew that like Carol, you're a funny lady and that's that's what you'll be known for forever cuz you're a legend in this. You're an absolute legend. And you you look just I know that I don't have a good mayor lead for you and Robert Montgomery. I totally get it, but we need to work together because this will be fun and we can do this forever. This will be super fun. Um, and it was fun and it was a success because audiences were happy with the belated happy news that Carol Lombard was the screwball queen once more. Um, and it was another year before she committed it to f- committed to this film to focus on her home and marriage and determined that her next film be an unqualified smash hit. Um, she was careful in selecting it. And obviously, as we discussed, she goes interested in these kind of projects. She gets interested in to be or not to be. Now, Jack actually handed her the script for this. And she responded to it. And they Lubitsch was at, apprehensive at first to have her, even though he knew her when he was the head of Paramount Pictures in the 30s um, and had immense respect for her. And she wanted to work with Lubitsch beyond any like she really wanted to work with lubich so this ended up being a happy marriage of everybody wanting to get on board with this project and you know united artists was the ended up being the half backer of this movie because the deal with lubich and Saul lesser um ended up transferring over to producer alexander korda and alexander korda was an independent producer who made several several classic films, but he was always seeming to be strapped for cash in some ways. We talked about Corda on the summertime episode. At this time, he's actually hemorrhaging money with an adaptation of the Jungle Book, which Ryan, that sounds familiar from 2016, with two Jungle Book movies and one of them going way over budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I Jungle feel, Book. I feel that one. Yeah, I I feel bad for Andy Circus. I wanted that movie to be bigger than it's not a bad movie it's just it's like it's it's not the jungle book we're wanting let's let's be perfectly honest with ourselves we were we were wanting what Jon Favreau end up giving us <laughs> um, and uh, so th- so finally when Carol Lombard signs on it's enough confidence for somebody like United Artists which is also kind of co-owned by Corda but that's not the full reason is that Lombard's such a co- marquee name that if we put her above and we give her all this publicity, this is going to sell the movie. Um, And it seemed like Jack might have had concerns about the billing, but it, it seems like Carol Lombard reassured him in the best possible way, which is just like, I'm giving you all the best material, so it wouldn't matter if my name's above yours or not. And to be fair, she's absolutely right. Benny gets the best material in the movie. Carol Lombard gets... She's, as you said, Ryan, she's the straight person in this movie. She's the straight man. And Benny is the, uh, the comic recipient to that, which is unique in Jack's career because he's usually put in a straight man role for a sillier character like a Frank Nelson or a Mel Blanc. Um, so they start shooting the movie. Um, and we'll just dive into this plot, Ryan. Let's, let's get it out of the way here. We open up um, Lubinsky, Poninsky, Mosnansky, and Posnansky. We're in Warsaw, the capital of Poland. And at the moment, life in Warsaw is as pleasant as ever. But then all of a sudden, Ryan, what happens? Hitler's walking around in Warsaw. What was that all about? <laughs> <laughs> this, this opening, Ryan, you were right. It's it's actually one of the reasons why this is one of my top five favorite films of all time is because this opening is remarkable. We go through three different levels of reality at once. <laughs> and we get we get this enter the first scene with jack alone he's playing this gestapo officer who's like yawning at somebody saying heil hitler and then immediately correcting himself like immediately pointing to like the 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 reality that like a lot of these people are like brainwashed by hitler into believing in this bullshit and but like they're they are human and thus because they're committing monstrous acts Lubitsch is trying to ask you to look at them as a human being so that you can understand that they can be defeated. Like that's the kind of brilliance of to be or not to be is, is that you look at the, you have to understand the Nazi in order to defeat it. And I think that's very prevalent in the, though know, this joke that keeps permeating the movie about like, uh, well, uh, Hitler's going to end up as a piece of cheese.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> and, it keeps coming back because at first it's just a line in the play and then it'll come back as something that the Nazi officers have heard and are talking amongst themselves. And like they recoil at when they tell the joke because they don't know if they're being politically correct for Hitler's Germany um, or like allowed to say it in Hitler's Germany by making fun of their Fuhrer or whatever. Uh, So there's like a very, very interesting note on censorship that permeates the movie as well in fact one of the big things in this movie is when they are not allowed to put on their nazi play the polish actors led by joseph Tura, are like are are gobsmacked and they in he the actually it's a great line he goes like that's the problem we can't show the play it might offend hitler and jack goes well wouldn't that be too bad (laughs) and uh but in the plot we are set up with they are clearly trying to make a play that makes fun of nazis and we get the introduction of lombard and uh tura as jack, played by jack and we establish their husband and wife and joseph and maria are a Ryan would you call this like a um uh like a star like, like, a, like a like a i i found this similar to like a like a a, a, a narcissistic like modern celebrity couple who can't get enough of themselves.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, man, I mean, Joseph's doing to Shakespeare what Hitler's doing to Poland. Ah, right Ah, <laughs> that
2: line, that line. Yes. He's a, he's a uh, great, a ham, Ryan. He's, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting dynamic that they have because, uh, you know, Maria Carol Lombard obviously loves her husband, but there's also, uh, a dashing young Polish airman who is also enamored with Maria.
2: Well, Ryan, 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 there's, <laughs> there's, this seems like a mystery. I don't know who you're talking about. Maybe we can solve the mystery.
0: Yeah. Actually, it's not it's a mystery. Like,
2: it's Robert Stack. <laughs> yeah. It's,
0: uh, it's kind of fun.
2: Cause there's this,
0: it, this does happen three times in it yeah. in the film <laughs> where um, Joseph Tura is going to give the, famous Hamlet line to be or not to be, hence the name of the film. Yep. And each time he does, someone gets up to leave. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> was, it's
2: it's and, a great uh, reaction.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, the Robert Stack, I, I, can't, I can't remember his character's name, but he uh, –
2: Sabinsky. Lieutenant Stanislav yeah. Savinsky, yeah.
0: So he's getting up because he knows that when Joseph Tura is on stage and doing his monologue, he can go – be flirtatious with his
2: wife yep And um, <laughs> that's the cue because she's she's actually it's funny she's not looking to leave joseph Tura. she's looking for a fling like she's she's yeah. she's actively we set up right away that she's not interested in necessarily leaving joseph she just wants to fool around about behind his back because she doesn't it's, it's weird, like, because Joseph as a character is much more concerned with his performance, it seems, than with his wife, although it's clear he loves his wife. It's just that it's like a marriage yeah. on the ropes kind of thing or like having trouble. Um, and also because they Lubitsch kind of implies through show business that, like, you know, this is something that happens within show business all the time. People fool around behind each other's backs. Like, he's kind of alluding to uh, contemporary Hollywood at that time where.
0: Yeah, well, that, too. And it's. You know, it, the film starts with this is the most important thing and I can't believe people don't think I'm a great actor. And yeah. then it segues into, you know, I would call it a, a World War II thriller where it's mm-hmm. trying to unmask a spy who is supposed to be part of the, you know, the, the Polish um, rebellion against the, the Nazis. Yep. And it's uh, it's a really fascinating film. And I think... A lot of times people don't give films of this era a lot of credit. A lot of times, because I think maybe they're black and white and they're not as flashy with the staging that films are nowadays. Uh, but a lot of films tackle pretty serious subjects. Now, I mean, this movie, I can get why people might be offended by it because, you know, there's uh, Concentration Camp Colonel. No,
2: concentration uh, Camp Bearhart, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and they're basically laughing at it, but it's done in a way that I think is really important to the psyche of people Mm -hmm. because they even say in the film that he's just a man. They're referring to Hitler. Yep. And um, he's, there's the only thing that's special about him is he's ruthless at the end of it.
2: He's a a human who create who commits inhuman acts. Exactly.
0: And that they, not only do they make fun of Hitler, but I mean, they, uh, Colonel Earhart is the dumbest Nazi <laughs> ever. And I, you, I, I mean, you know, my, who plays him, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my favorite comedy bit in the whole film is, I mean, there's a lot. I, I mean, I laugh pretty much throughout the whole movie, but when, they find the body of the professor that Joseph is posing as, and they think that they got him as a, like a double agent. Uh, but Joseph realizes that he has a separate, separate fake beard. So he shaves the corpse of the real spy and puts the fake beard on, beard on him. And I didn't, it was it's set up so well because uh Benny's so great in this scene where it, it's one of those movie or scenes in films where you know a lot of times there'll be a serious thing happening and in the background there's something silly. Mm-hmm. Well, in this one, he comes into the room and there's literally a corpse sitting in a chair, <laughs> and he walks like, by what? it and he doesn't he doesn't notice it right away, and then he doesn't know how he's gonna get out of it. Then he pulls out the fake beard and he looks at the razor and I go oh okay Yep. It, it, i love when he opens the door and he says colonel can i see you for a moment <laughs> it's just it's just the the way it's delivered
2: Yep. Yeah. and when rumen when rumen tells him uh like he, he he's actually trying to point out like like well you know i think this man looks like me i it must be me and he he's pointing out like everything that looks and feels like about him and they're like well, see this coat on the corpse it's um uh, it's it's made in London, and Mr. Soletsky yeah. was in London, and he's like, "Well, this looks bad for me, doesn't it <laughs> like-
0: <Yeah. laughs> no i couldn't pull his i couldn't pull his beard and when he pulls it up and what's funny too about that whole scene is it just also highlights how the film traits how stupid the Nazis are, yeah, where instead of him just showing up and being arrested right away and you know you know killed, it goes into this huge I'm going to trick him in um, <laughs> a moment. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, uh, Joseph gets out of it and they go, we're so sorry we had that. And then the other people from his acting troupe show up <laughs> disguised as Nazis. Led and by take Lionel a- Atwill.
2: <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> uh, and I, I loved the part, I think, where Lombard is her comedic best in this is it's, Near the end, well, actually, the end. She's really great too. But at the, at, near the end, uh, Colonel Arne Earhart shows up at her door again, and she's like, "I have an appointment. I must leave." And it's a really manic scene. And uh, the actor who's playing Hitler shows up as Hitler.
2: Yeah, Tom Dugan. Um, Tom Dugan, yeah.
0: <laughs> and she, she, uh, you know, she runs out. She says, "My fear." And, <laughs> I, I just uh, love. I, I love that moment because to me, that's where it's the most screwball comedy. Yeah, <laughs> where Lombard talking really fast, trying to get out of the advances of a Nazi colonel who's obviously attracted to her, mm-hmm. and um, and then some dude posing as Hitler to get them back to England. <laughs> um, you know, comes in and. Uh, Colonel Errors is like,
2: mm-hmm. Hi, Hitler, and he's all afraid of what's going to happen. And then this is like one of those darker moments in the movie. And I'll, I'll we'll go uh, for the audience, we'll go back to some other plot points in the movie. But <laughs> <laughs> after this happens, he's so distraught that he just looks down at a gun, and we cut to the outside, and we get a suicide joke, which is like. <laughs> The only reason it still works today, because suicide jokes are hard because suicide is a serious subject, as Ryan and I are more than aware of. And But when he does it, you hear the gun go off, it drops, and he goes, shorts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, and then,
0: you know, uh, I know I'm kind of bouncing around here, but I... Yeah, I no, go ahead, yeah. The, the, it, why I said this is like a Mel Brooks film to me is they, they get on the airplane, they're falling in. And uh they go and says, Hey, uh, the Fuhrer wants to see you and, and the two pilot Nazi pilots get up, and it's actually so bi- biting satire too. They come back and uh the guy who's acting as Hitler, who's not really Hitler, he's like, Jump, and the they, two pilots
2: jump out of the airplane. They go and they go like either my Fuhrer or Heil Hitler, like they just jump yeah. out, like it's they just it, jump out of the airplane. Yeah, and to me that's Satire at
0: its best because it's making fun of how blindly people followed Hitler mm-hmm. and at a time where I mean he invaded Poland I mean 2 years prior when this movie was being shot so it's it's really fascinating and it's also in a way it's kind of sad you laugh at it but then you also think that they probably would have done that yeah. You know, that's why it's kind of a Mel Brooks film where it's uh, humor that you wouldn't expect in a 1942 film and it 100 percent works. And this movie, like I said, is a great movie and it works on so many levels or so many like levels and onion layers you can peel back mm-hmm. um, because it, there's so, there is a lot going on, but it's all – Rooted in making fun of Nazis at
2: the end yeah, of the day. There, there's there's a thing about this film that I think gets um, uh, overlooked is that it's a screwball comedy about Nazism, um, and <clears throat> the the commentary breaks it down. And actually, I agree with this, but I want to also like add a little to it if I can. Is that you know he he, he proclaims it's working on these these several layers and you said this too, Ryan, but one of them is a screwball bedroom farce between Benny Lombard and stack. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you have a political drama thriller wartime thriller, if you will. Um, And the movie really does work into the realm of like, to be serious or not to be serious. That is the question or to be funny or not to be funny. This Mm -hmm. is a, this is a melding of genres, which realistically, if when we say the word dramedy today, it means something very, very different because we're talking about primarily relationship comedies. And uh, and Lubitsch was, you know, Billy Wilder obviously refines it later on. But Lubitsch is really the like one of the true inventors of the rom-com that we know today that then gets elaborated on and perfected by Wilder. And actually, you know, Wilder invents tropes of his own, too, to do it. But Lubitsch kind of does this and he takes the this rom-com or bedroom farce spectacle and sticks it right in the middle of the of this World War 2 aesthetic that it's funny because like the 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 main impetus of the film is not the bedroom farce it's almost like Lubitsch is setting you up with one of his typical films and then just completely shifts the wheel like he just and then he we have to deal with tonal shifts in this movie and I don't know if you noticed this, Ryan, but in uh, the commentary points this out too, and it's one of the reasons why I like. I think I have connected to the film as long as I have because I first saw this when I was like eleven or twelve, um, after finding out it finally had been released by Warner Brothers on DVD. And um, uh, this film is very Tarantino esque, uh, and why I say that is like, you know, the commentary points it out like there's a shift between seriousness and silly that Tarantino gets away with. And in fact, inglorious bastards takes a lot from this movie. Like it's down to the very final scene where they're at a theater dressed as Nazis to infiltrate it where the main guest of honor is supposed to be Hitler. But then Quentin sees that and goes like, "But what if I made it an action movie? What 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 if what if uh, what what if I don't know? Eli Roth shoots a guy with a knuckle gun, and then what if I don't know? He just uh, uses a Tommy gun and kills Hitler in the face, and then what if what if Brad Pitt carves a scar into the guy that's trying to thwart their plans? Like, that's kind of what he does. He takes this idea of." the 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 ideas of to be or not to be and extends them into a realm that we as a modern audience receive better and actually the something that was pointed out in the commentary that I didn't pick up on until today like this is a movie about pop culture defeating nazism <laughs> like if you think about it because like what happens after w- poland is bombed uh Robert Stack goes off to war to fight with the Polis squadron of the RAF. And when he meets Professor um, uh played by Stanley Ridges, who is not really a comedy actor, he gets more known for films, uh, for like noirs and stuff later on down the line. But um, <clears throat> he uh, he's a professor who is secretly a Nazi double agent who collects the names of all these. Uh, uh of all these uh squadron pilots and their families to basically root out people in the underground in Poland and Robert Stack is giving him this information and uh he says like my family's out of Europe but there is one special lady who I want you to get a message to just give her the message to be or not to be she'll know what it means and he she he goes what's the name and she goes he goes Maria Tura and he goes yeah I see and then suddenly Robert Stack's eyes light up in a way that you don't see again until Unsolved Mysteries. (laughs) There's like genuine interest of like, wait a minute, how do you not know the most famous actress in Poland? Like, Like, there is a modern relevance today, Ryan, where like, pop culture's changed a bunch but like if if let's be honest if we walk around the street and we talk about something like star wars and somebody says i've never heard of star wars the look on our face is gonna be of one of shock <laughs> like what you know and <laughs> what,
0: it, the the movie has so many i actually watched it twice last night to Woo! catch things um because there's so many Moments, um, you know, you mentioned how Lombard's name was above Benny's. There's an inter, there's an exchange between the two characters where they even mention it.
2: Yeah. In it. Yep.
0: And, um, you know, where, you know, if I remember right, Joseph says, you know, you know, darling, um, you were right this morning. I mentioned to put your name above mine and uh maria says you know i don't care about that and he says you're right so i just left it as it is
2: yeah he's like she i could honestly care less that's what dobash said so we let it stand as it is but you know then he's talking about
0: um this is how clever the writing is you know when um uh robert sacks character gets up during his soliloquy um you know Maria is trying to comfort him, saying, "Well, maybe he ha- wasn't feeling well. Maybe he was having a heart attack, and maybe he's dead already." And uh, Joe says, "Oh, you didn't know how to comfort me, or it's so comforting." I'm, I'm, I'm
2: gonna, I'm gonna lay in the clip right now for folks who, uh, who want to know what the scene is, and we'll talk about it here in just a second. Happen, what every actor dreads.
1: What, darling? What? Someone walked out on me. Tell me, Maria, am I losing my grip? Of course not, darling. I'm so sorry. But he walked out on me. Maybe he didn't feel well. Maybe he had to leave. Maybe he had a sudden heart attack. I hope so. If he stayed, he might have died. Maybe he's dead already. Oh, darling, you're so comforting.
2: So, Ryan, yes, that scene that you're talking about, Ryan... That's my favorite mm-hmm. scene in the movie because it yeah. is, and you know, and you know, the reasons why it's, it's, it's a Benny scene, yeah. but it's, um it's very much like, to me, it's the natural actor progression for Jack, given the character he played where he's done something similar to this before, where he kind of plays drama queen about, Somebody not liking his performances, but he does it in a more aggravated way on the show. Here we see him like vulnerable. Like Joseph Tura is when somebody walks, it, like it, when somebody has walked out on him, it really smacks his ego down to the point of like a I don't want to say like a scared child, but like you know, like he, he, the, the, there's an insecurity. You see an insecurity in Joseph Tura. That you've never seen Benny give prior to this, like the insecurities on his show, like he brushes them off as like, well, this is normal. And in To Be or Not To Be, he's like a broken, he's a broken mess after this. And I love the line of like, maybe he had a heart attack. Maybe he couldn't. Maybe he's dead already. <laughs>
0: and she's oh, like, "You're so comforting, thinking that this guy's dead." Yeah, and he's just like, you know, "I hope that's so." Like he walked out his performance. Not that his performance was bad.
2: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, "Oh, darling, you're so comforting." It's it's the it's the clip I used at the beginning of my panel because I'm like, this is the definition of why Benny could have been a great movie actor if somebody had directed him like Lubitsch did, um, and. there's there's every time he does the Hamlet soliloquy when some when Robert Stack will get up like he changed the first the first time he's confused and the second time you see him go into anger in such a way where I'm like oh he's actually doing Shakespeare accidentally now like he's doing like what you would expect out of the Hamlet performance technically and like you know this movie when the way it shifts between comedy and drama is not too dissimilar from Shakespeare himself where Shakespeare can would meld between this realm of comedy and drama. Hamlet has comedy in it, but it's also a very serious play or comedy of errors um, and uh, has or has moments of drama in the midst of its comedy. Um, you know, uh, there's there's instances where Shakespeare is melding genres this way. And it's actually something that got him and like got him discredited more like. Like, like frowned upon by neoclassicists 300 years prior to this film being made and yet Lubitsch is doing it again and as we'll find out another form of not neoclassicism but I would say just like people who weren't in on the gag or able to comprehend it would denounce the shifting between comedy and drama not to their not because they're wrong but because they they just weren't in tune with it the way it happened and uh, actually, I think it's most prevalent in the Greenberg character, because Greenberg mm-hmm. all he wants to do is play Shylock, and yep. <laughs> I think. And you've seen Bressart before in The Shop Around the Corner, so you know that this guy can pull off some wonderful scenes. This is his finest film role for me, because he's yeah. he gives a sacrifice at the end of this movie where he, they have to play this scene and he dies. Like he does not get to escape. He gets led off by actual Nazis and Greenberg. I think all he wants, all he wants to do is play an important role. That's, that's the, that's the impetus of it. And I think that there's a lot that we can draw on as a modern audience from, especially the political climate of the last four years of like, we want to play an important role in making sure that terrible things don't happen. And Greenberg kind of personifies it in this film. Like when he gives, the first delivery of the Shylock speech, you know, it's used for comedy. Like, you know, Dugan goes like, you would have killed him. Like he <laughs> said, I have to carry yeah. a spear. That's all we do. Carry a spear in the first act, carry a spear in the second act. <laughs> <laughs> and the, by the time we get to the second delivery of it, if you prick us, do we not bleed? It's the like absolute form of desperation where they, Poland has just been invaded and he and, um, uh, he and, uh, uh, Tom Dugan are standing outside shoveling the snow and Bresser d- gives that and he goes all I had to do was carry a spear um, so instead of all we do is carry a spear it's all I had to do like you see this level of loss that happens when folks like Hitler and his Nazi crony assholes invade a place like Poland and you you start to understand especially from a modern perspective where things are how things were operating the last four years and whatnot in that form of like terror and fear and like sadness that permeates. And I think that Bressart's character is very much the heart of the movie because let's face it, Benny and Lombard are like two of the most selfish people you could <laughs> possibly yeah. meet in this movie because they're both just, they're not horrible people. They're just like, they're very, um they're very concerned with their own selves. Like Robert Stack and Robert Stack certainly like, We haven't talked much about him, but I'm going to say, Ryan, like Robert Stack's really fucking good in this movie. Like he's, (laughs) he's known to us primarily as unsolved mysteries guy and everybody makes fun of him with the, maybe you can help solve the mystery. But I guess the mystery here to solve today is, is like, was Robert Stack a good actor? And the answer is yes, because like he, (laughs) when he's trying to convince Carol Lombard to leave her husband, to leave Torah, yeah. he's just like well what are we going to do about your husband and he's like oh but you don't want that I read all your interviews you told me you didn't want that like <laughs> absolutely yeah, he, you know,
0: she he reaches out to hug her too and she says you know I can't hug you it'll ruin my makeup or
2: something like that. <laughs> yeah uh, exactly uh, her vanity like it's weird she's actually yeah. inhabiting a lot of Jack Bennyism uh, in order to pull this role off like yeah. she's having to play that vainglorious, like narcissistic. In this case, it's a, um, uh, uh, stage, like drama queen kind of thing. Um, and so, but the, the entirety of this film ends up winding around. Like we get, we've had over the course of this film, a bunch of, uh, illusions and rep- repetition of dialogue and gags, but, uh, we haven't talked about the two big scenes in this movie where they are the same scene, but played with different actors um, playing different parts. Benny is the only through line. Um, and it has to do with professor Solinsky and then uh, Colonel Earhart. The first scene where they, ext- they're going to extract um, professor Solinsky and basically trap him to kill him. And it involves Benny and the rest of the company playing, uh, Gestapo officers and using the theater as a fake Gestapo set, and Jack basically working to make sure he can get the files that, uh, uh that Zelensky has on the, uh, uh, uh that Professor Zelensky has on the uh, Polish underground to make sure that the Polish underground is protected. And they play this out where it's like, you know, do you know what they call you in, uh, in, uh, uh, in London's concentration camp, Earhart, and there's this hearty laugh and there's this Benny trying to keep up this persona and he lets it go because of his vanity. Like the persona uh, drops because he finds out about the, aff- he confirms the affair
1: mm-hmm.
2: and then goes to rush out the door and turns the knob and realizes it's not an actual door. And that's when he, <laughs> has to pull back on it and that's when Professor Silecki notices they corner him, they take him they they drive him into the actual theater where this is, I will say this is sometimes imagery like this makes me uncomfortable like a shooting in a theater but this scene where they are lo- hunting down trying to find Sa- Professor Ciletsky, uh, and you see that spotlight move on him as he's running across the theater stage mm-hmm. Like that is like it's tense, but hilarious because it is like so over the top. Like <laughs> you see Stanley Rich is running like a like a madcap uh, slapstick actor, <laughs> like, and then he goes behind the stage and when you hear that gunshot behind the curtain, the curtain rises and he tries to give that one more Hitler salute before he falls to the ground. There's an enormous amount of blood on his shirt. Like the whole scene is very subversive and it does have different connotations today sometimes, but really at the end of the day, this is a scene like that doesn't mean much to the movie, but it shows Lubitsch as a wonderful director who knows how to work with shadow and light and, Really knowing how to create a suspenseful moment and he uses a lot of Hitchcock tropes throughout his career that I don't think he fully acknowledges, which is totally fine. It's not like Hitchcock didn't invent these tropes, but Hitchcock made them much more popular. Um, one of them being, like, the use of these, like, Nazi double agents and these warnings of the war going, like, the fucking Nazis are coming. I've told you guys over and fucking over again. And um, he's doing it in this comedic tone. And then the next scene when Jack goes dressed, at, disguised as Professor um, uh he... Runs into Sig Ruman, who is con- con- the real Colonel Harehart, and they do the ex- pretty much the exact same scene that they just did with Stanley Ridges. So it's interesting to watch the same scene played out. And the joke is that pretty much everything that Joseph Tura thought was going to happen does happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> he's, actually it's, it's one of the reasons why in the remake of the film, um, uh, Uh, Who is it? Um, uh, He played Peter Griffin's father on Family Guy. um, And he's... uh, Oh, God. I'm going to have to look his name. Charles Durning. Charles Durning. That's it. Charles Durning. Uh, Charles Durning plays Colonel Earhart in the remake. And he got an Oscar nomination for it. And it makes so much sense. Because that role is kind of a brilliant comic foil role. And... Yeah, but you know who Sig Ruman is, Ryan, because we're fans of the Marx Brothers, and yeah. who who can forget his infamous fights with Groucho and eventually acquiescing to Groucho, uh, so that the Gottlieb Opera Company would have the 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 distinct services of Alan Jones <laughs> in the night of the opera. Alan, yeah, he's he also
0: he was born in Germany too, <laughs> yes. so it, it's always fascinating that. Um how many people escaped and or were part of Germany and did not share these views
2: Yeah he well he was actually what's interesting is that he probably would have like had to switch around because he he was he served in the Imperial German Army during World War 1 um hmm. he resumed his career after the war but he emigrates over to the US in 1924 my I don't have much information on it but my guess is is that um uh there's a couple of things that actually does happen. His original screen name is Siegfried Rumann, and he changes it to Sig Rumann in 36. And he tries to make it less German sounding because there is anti-German prejudice rising mm-hmm. at the time at the outbreak of the Second World War. Now, the, the difference between German prejudice and Nazi prejudice is obviously different because the, the, there's an uns, there's a, there's a, uh, ultimate reality is that the first country that the Nazis invaded was their own. Um, and Ruman, I don't have much information on his political beliefs, but he— he had no compunction making fun of Nazi figures. So clearly he didn't like the Nazis at least because <laughs> yeah. it, it would have been easy for him to be like, I'm not playing this role. I'll rather be, you know, homeless and whatever. So clearly he knew how to, you know, like make fun of the fact, like even if he served in the Imperial army, he's uh, in the first world war. He's just like, no, I do not like these people. Like these are just terrible. Oh, oh this makes me so angry. Like it's he, and he's, his bumbling in this movie Is so amazing. Like it is, he is he is a stressed out, anxiety ridden middle management guy. (laughs) Like (laughs) he doesn't know if he's going to have a job by the end of the day, and it's applied to a terrifying SS officer. It's so subversive. Like it doesn't. It's this is a movie again. Ryan, you were alluding to this. How do they get away with this in 1942? And the answer is only Lubitsch could do it. Like nobody else could have done this. It's not till like years later when the Marx brothers make a night in Casablanca where you're suddenly able to make these really broad comedies that make fun of Nazis. Like this one had to be as subtle as it possibly could. But there's so much on the surface. Sig Ruman says the line like the setup is. Jack goes, oh, by the way, he's, um, he's pl- he, he's the, she's the wife of that famous Polish actor, Joseph Tura, who you've probably heard of. And he goes, oh, yes, what he is doing to Shakespeare, we are doing to Portland. And <laughs> that line was apparently such a contentious point for people. Um, this film was test screened in Beverly Hills. Um, and uh, the preview, that line was so reviled that everybody got around Lubitsch and basically it was just like you've got to take out that line. Vivian Lubich said it and then everybody followed. You had people like Korda and Henry Blanke. and then you had Billy Wilder and people like Walter Rains all telling him take out this joke. Like and Walter Raines is the same person who wrote the fewer but we will have fewer but better Russians joke in the Notchka. So he's hearing all this and Lubich just puts his foot down and goes like I'm not changing a goddamn thing. Like I you you cowards, like <laughs> how dare you tell me that I cannot apply the Lubitsch touch to something as amazing as this? Like Walter, we just did this joke three years ago, <laughs> like this is this is the level of like impetus he has to put up with, but as we talked about, nobody knew how people were going to react to this movie, and this is even before World War II kicks off with the u s involved, so there's a chance that, let's say, the war didn't happen until 1940, mid-1942 after the movie had already come out. There's still a chance that people would have been miffed by this, but because it comes out after World War II has broken out, there's a whole different air over the over the land. And the, the, let's, let's get to the end of the movie because we, we've got a little bit of stuff to cover for the, for the aftermath of this, but they do escape Poland. And they land in Scotland. <laughs> mm-hmm. And actually, the when he, Tom Dugan as Hitler lands into a haystack by two Scottish farmers and they go, first Hess, now this. <laughs> <laughs> the small line. And they get a press conference in and they go like, well, Joseph Tour, you are clearly the hero of this <laughs> magnificent adventure. And he's playing the false humility of like, I couldn't have done it without all my friends and what is the thing you want to do in London? And he goes, Carol Lombard immediately goes, he wants to play Hamlet. And Jack tries to like brush it off. Like, well, we are in the land of the Bard or land of the the hometown of Shakespeare. And she goes, he wants to play Hamlet. Like (laughs) just like enough. (laughs) (laughs) You're already the hero. So we get a scene where they are playing Hamlet once again. And Jack, there's this, it's actually really amazing because it plays off of Jack's way to react in a uh, his reactive comedy in a way that totally works, where he looks off to the stage, he sees that Robert Stack is sitting down politely, looking up. He looks back at his book. He looks back at Robert Stack. Robert Stack's still sitting there, and Jack feels comfortable. Joseph tour feels comfortable enough to go into his soliloquy to be or not to be, and then suddenly somebody else gets up and walks, yeah. <laughs> walks to the backstage, and it cuts to. It's actually my favorite physical thing Robert Stack does in the movie he looks at the person leaving and then he turns to Jack going like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it did, the movie ends on Jack looking befuddled once again as if we're, we're going to go through this whole thing all over again like get, stay tuned for to be or not to be too like, <laughs> and like so that that whole gag of Hamlet is a repeat segment that keeps going and going and going to provide the comedy through line for a story that really wants to talk about the Nazi menace and Lubitsch finds a way to do it via the entry point of a bedroom farce. Um, And I will say that the scene where Jack discovers stack in his bed and his slippers, and then has to listen to Lombard and stack talk about it. I don't know if you noticed this, Ryan, but we talked about the awful truth on your first appearance on this show. It's almost like Jack is being put in the Bellamy position in the scene. Yeah. Like he reacts to it. And like, actually Lombard does this wonderful <laughs> screwball thing where she runs through the plot of the movie essentially and goes like, doesn't that make sense? And Jack just goes, no, <laughs> <laughs> this just going like, I have no idea what's going on. And he has a line that is wonderful. He's like, I don't, I don't know what this is all about, but is this Seletsky really a bad guy? And he's like, absolutely is. He must be dealt with. Then he will be dealt with. I'll go ahead and take care of it. And when I'm do- through killing him, I th- I hope you guys will kindly tell me what this was all about. Like, yeah. <laughs> which I love that. That's one of the reasons why I love his character in this movie. It's just like, he's, he's a. it's not a reluctant hero like a Han Solo. It's more just like a uh, inconvenienced hero. <laughs> he's just like, look, I,
0: Oh, look, I'll okay. tell you who my wife will have dinner with and whom she will kill. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. And he's <laughs> just like, look, 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 look. I I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I'm going to go kill the Nazi douchebag, and then you, you, you're, I'm going to come back, and we're going to all talk about this without you acting like a bunch of sped-up morons. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the film ends, though. And so... There's a lot that happens in at the result of this movie, and Ryan, you're you're just as familiar with uh, a lot of this. But the there's a couple of things that happens. Let's talk about the first one, which is the reception of this movie. Period. Um, which is this movie was not well received by critics. Um, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, who I know I give a lot of hard time to. Um, I don't like this review. However, in light of hearing hearing the, you know, needed viewpoint from, uh, the panel that we had. Um, I will bring up the fact that this review is not uncommon and isn't like, it's not that Crowder doesn't get it. I think it's just that it feels wrong to him at the time, which is, this is the quote that I have. It's hard to imagine how anyone can take without batting an eye, a, a shattering air raid upon Warsaw right after a sequence of farce or the spectacle of Mr. Benny playing a comedy scene with a Gestapo corpse. Mr. Lubitsch had an odd sense of humor and a tangled script when he made this film. That particular quote in general, like fascinates me because Lubitsch does have an odd sense of humor and he's never been ashamed of it. It's just that I don't think anybody had ever seen him do quite this before. Not even the does this, um, what we see in this movie. And, In a certain respect, I don't know what your thoughts are, Ryan, because you talked about how you'd find it fascinating to wonder how people would have received this. Like, do you imagine that the paying audience of this film was detracted, not just by the other factor that we're going to talk about with Lombard, but also just the idea of making fun of Nazis right as we've just entered World War II? I I think
0: it's a tough sell. I mean, (laughs) I don't know. I've You know, the thing that's hard about golden age hollywood is they usually get rid of the original trailers so you get a lot of re-release trailers so i I, i'd be curious on how they would sell the film to the people and also by selling it that way when people went and saw it they weren't seeing the film that they were told they were seeing Mm -hmm. because my guess is when you see um, carol lombard and jack benny you're expecting you know, zaniness throughout.
2: Well, it's funny because the, the title initially went under scrutiny by United artists because they actually, they didn't even think there was going to be an issue with the subject matter, like, or at least they weren't like fully caring about it. They were worried that to be or not to be would implicate that Carol Lombard and Jack Benny were going to be in a serious Shakespearean drama. And they didn't think that would be a good selling point. And (laughs) Lubitsch, (laughs) Lubitsch did something that I kind of love Ryan. It's, it's it's shitty, but it's wonderful. He started a PR campaign to piss off United Artists and like built up enough smoke to be like, well, fine, I'm just going to call the movie The Censor for And apparently Benny and Lombard thought this was serious and then attacked United Artists. And United Artists was like, look, 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 look no, we're, we're not, we're just saying that. And then Lubitsch basically got to his point, which is that it's a movie directed by Ernst Lubitsch starring Carol Lombard and Jack Benny. I'm pretty sure the audience knows it's going to be a comedy. So now what you bring up, though, is interesting is is that like if they're walking into a comedy with these two actors and then they see what they see, they're probably going to be taken aback. And not everybody's going to be in on the joke the way we have the benefit of historical hindsight and we have the benefit of witnessing the world around us as it's been in, in a current environment and knowing the genius in a piece like this, but Nazism as a concept was not really like so prevalent in American minds. Like the, and and in fact, in in some circles, you know, there were, you know, German American buns where this is, this is known, but never fully discussed is that the Nazis held a rally at Madison square garden, you know, like there's, this is not, this is not unknown to them, but it's also, they don't see, they, they were given a different perspective on like not offending Germany. And now you get this film that completely attacks Germany and mm-hmm. Nazism. And it must be very hard to comprehend, especially after Pearl Harbor, especially after, you know, we've just entered the war and we've got to understand why we're fighting this war in full, because really only Jewish Americans would be fully in tune to the situation in Europe because they're getting contact from their family that remains in Europe. And, trying to get them out carl Lemley senior one of those people who spent a lot of his money during the 30s getting people out of his country so that they could be safe and among those was folks like billy wilder who ended up becoming one of the greatest directors of all time so you know there's there's a sense that i get like i i kind of talk about this film in the respect that like i i always feel like well you should be brave you should stand up to this you should laugh at your laugh at the enemy like this Um, but it's also very true that you can't just blindly say to the critics of the past that they're wrong because this is in in the case of Bosley Crowther, he's not wrong to bring this up because how do you receive it? Um, But I will say that not everybody hated the movie. Variety actually called it one of Lubitsch's best productions in a number of years. Um, Time magazine was the only periodical to not object to the line what we are doing to what he did to Shakespeare. We are doing to Poland. Um, so that was, that was not only a huge consternation for people, but actually Lubitsch had to write a piece, an op-ed in defense of this movie. Um, and you know, I think that when we talk about the film as it stands from a critical analysis point, I think it's a film that works better after time has passed, after a situation like World War II has ended, because it provides a little bit more perspective on how to view those events in, in, in during the war. But well, yeah, it's easier to laugh
0: at Nazis now, than, you know? <laughs> yeah, because like they've been defeated.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's and it's one of these other reasons why films like Jojo Rabbit that extend off of to be or not to be can be received in their time the correct way because. We've had enough knowledge to know now. By this point, we we're not unaware of how to you know take down, you know, violent and extremist hate groups. Um, But Ryan, we're 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 not we're we're not going to leave this room without talking about Mm -hmm. one of the greatest American heroes of all time, which is Carol Lombard. So, (laughs) the production on this film wraps, and Carol Lombard during. During this time, she, you know, she's again, she's working on her marriage with with Gable and such, but she's going back into this role. Then the war, the war breaks out. World War Two occurs when the U.S. enters it. Like that's when it becomes the World War Two, or well, they enter it in 1941 on December 7th when the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. Lombard immediately gets on the bandwagon of promoting. The war effort to sell war bonds. She travels to her home state of Indiana for rallies with her mother, best Peters and Clark Gables press agent, which was Otto Winkler and Lombard raised more than $2 million in defense bonds in a single night. Um, And the, she does this for the number of weeks between 1941 and very early 1942. She is running across the country Um, she, she and her group had been initially scheduled to return to L.A. by train, but Lombard, who was having some rough patches with her relationship with Clark Gable, that she wanted to get home more quickly because they had kind of started reconciling much more and her mother and Winkler were afraid of flying and insisted that they follow the original plans, but Lombard had them flip a coin, they agreed, and Lombard wins this toss. On January 16th, 1942, those three board Transcontinental and Western Air Douglas DST, the Douglas Seeper Transport aircraft, to return to California. And when they were refueling in Las Vegas, TWA Flight 3 took off at 7.07 p.m., and they crashed into the double up peak near the... Uh, two thousand five hundred thirty meter level of Potosi mountain. Uh, the plane was it was immediately incinerated. Everybody on board died. Um, the cause of the crash was attributed to the flight crews inability to properly navigate the mountains surrounding Las Vegas. Um and this is a, precau- as a precaution against the possibility of enemy Japanese bomber aircraft coming into American airspace from the Pacific safety beacons normally used to direct night flights had been turned off, leaving the pilot and the crew of the TWA flight without visual warnings of the mountains in their flight path. Um, there's a book that I recommended to Ryan way back and I believe you read, which was fireball, um, which is Carol Lombard and the mystery of flight three. Uh, It is an amazing book that talks about not only Carol Lombard's career and the importance of to be or not to be, but also talks about the importance of that crash Um, and several things that it helped basically suss out for future um, safety with air travel. Um, But yeah, Carol Lombard dies uh, tragically and far too before her time. We lost a great comic actress when we lost Carol Lombard. We lost an American hero when we did that as well because of the work that she had initially started doing to support this war effort. This effort would end up being carried on, I'd argue, legacy-wise by Betty Davis when she forms the Hollywood Canteen with John Garfield, where she's not doing the exact same thing, but she's providing a space for soldiers to be entertained uh, before they ship off to war and possible death. Um, And Lombard's death casts a shadow over Hollywood. Like, it was.
0: Gotten- she was. She had been one of the biggest stars to have died mm-hmm. in early Hollywood.
2: Yep, I think. Well, and I think especially within that modern recent history. I mean, you have, you have other actors dying, but like this was such a huge issue, not just because of her name, but because of why she died and how she died and what she was doing prior to her death. Like, she was lionized, rightfully so, because of everything that she had been doing up to this point, she was putting her money where her mouth was. Not only am I going to make fun of the Nazis, but I'm going to run around the country and raise money so that American soldiers can get over there and liberate that country. And when she died, obviously Clark Gable was distraught. He was brought out to Las Vegas. He got up to Las Vegas and he waited to hear back any information that he could. Um, There's a story, and I can't confirm it, um it's from one of the biographies on Jack i believe it's Irving Fine's book um who Irving was his manager and with showbiz stories Ryan knows this as well as i do you got to take showbiz stories with a grain of salt at first because sometimes these are legends that are created by the people themselves in order to uh cement their the their status i guess would be the best way like Ryan we were just talking about at the top of the episode the Judy 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 with Cary Grant um, that this there are certain stories amongst comedians especially where there's legends printed that aren't necessarily true in this case I think it might be pretty factual because Jack was known to take long road trips um, with amongst other people Frank Remley and it's said that when Jack heard the news he he was friends with the Gables with Lombard and Gable prior to the filming of the film and especially after the fact. And when he heard about the death, he actually drove out with one of his other uh w- with one of his other cronies to go be there with Clark. And they got about halfway through and Jack uh, he the the person who was with Jack basically kind of assured him like, you know, there's not much you're going to be able to do because Clark's already there. It might just create more confusion than there needs to be. And so they turned back. Um, And Benny, Jack, even though he knew that that was the right thing to do is just turn back and kind of let it be what it's going to be, he was so distraught, Ryan, that his weekly broadcast that week, he did not show up. They did not prepare a script. He told, from all accounts, it seems like he told Morrow and Boulogne, his writers, don't even bother we're going to do it. If anybody's going to be on the show, just have Don Wilson and Dennis Day uh, do a formal singing show. Uh, so if you listen to the week of uh, Carol Lombard's death, uh, you can find this very easily. Uh, the week of her death, it's an all musical show with just Dennis Day singing, with Male America in the orchestra, uh, and Don Wilson doing commercials and announcing. They say Jack Benny won't be on the air tonight. They do not specifically reference Lombard's death. The next week he returns and he begins this two-parter episode that ends up being that ends up having Humphrey Bogart at the end of it. And Jack is, he's still on top of his game. He's still as good as ever, but you can hear, you can, you can hear a little bit of distraughtness in him. Like he seems still a little bit down. Mary definitely seems a little down, Um, but they are carrying on performance wise as they always would have because that's, who they were Um, but Jack also did not promote this movie on his radio show after Carol's death. It was too hard for him Uh, and a lot of Jack's film successes ended up being because he was able to promote them through radio, even if the film was crap and he started promoting this movie. There are uh, radio recordings that you're going to hear at the top of this episode where, they talk about working with Ernst Lubitsch and Carol Lombard. And then once Carol Lombard's death happens, there is no mention of to be or not to be until the late 1940s and early 50s when Jack is watching television uh, in one of the radio shows. And he finds out that to be or not to be is going to be on television that night. <laughs> and I'll lay that clip in here. No. <laughs> Roger, there must be something
1: else. on. Hand me the paper. I'll look at the television program. Here you are, boss Let's see, time for Beanie (laughs) Alan Young, Burns and Allen. Frost Warning Put on your glasses, boss, that's Fred Wearing Gee, I hope Phil doesn't find out Let's see, wrestling matches Hey, Rochester, look at this What? Channel 11 is showing my picture tonight To be or not to be Hey, that was a good one. That was the good one. <laughs> yeah, turn on channel 11 now. Because the picture goes on soon. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> What happened? I don't know, but something's wrong with the set. But it was just working. Maybe there's something wrong with that station. Try the other channels. Okay. Ew. <laughs> He is, without a doubt. The most. Excuse me, Mr. Th- Coleman. Uh, yes, Sherwood. Mr. Jack Benny just phoned. He wanted to talk to you. Oh, what did you tell him? Instinctively that you were out. <laughs> ah, good boy, Sherwood, good boy. I, I remember you on your birthday. <laughs> uh, Sherwood, did Mr. Benny mention what he wanted? Uh, yes, Mrs. Coleman. He said he'd like to come over here and watch television on your set. On our set? Yeah, I forgot to tell you, Ronnie, when he bought his, he returned ours. Okay. I uh, I wonder what Jack wants to see on television tonight. He mentioned that they were showing a picture of his, to be or not to be. Oh, yes, I saw that years ago. That was a good one. That was the good one.
2: But the clip you've just heard, uh, Jack goes like, say that was a good one. And Rochester Eddie Anderson replies, that was the good one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it gets doubled down by Ronald Coleman, who <laughs> they hear that Jack is trying to watch television in their house because his television is broken. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and Benita goes like, oh, he's here to watch his picture, to be or not to be. That was a good one. And Ronald Coleman goes, that was the good one. <laughs> And so the legacy of To Be or Not To Be is a couple of things. It's a film that ends up getting rediscovered through repertory screenings, people analyzing Lubitsch. And it ends up becoming a a point of talk for two reasons. One is it's Carol Lombard's final film. And two, it is the greatest Jack Benny movie ever made, um, which is a tough statement to say because there are films that amongst the Jack Benny fandom we like more or like have more fun with like George Washington slept here and Hornblows at Midnight are favorites for other people but nobody ever denies that this is the best performance he ever gave Um, so I wanted to sum it up by asking you Ryan like you may be you may have to reiterate what you've already said very eloquently but having watched the film do you kind of like get why like do you kind of under, do you like what what do you take away from it in terms of its impact on the audience today and where you see it in other films oh
0: wow um
2: <laughs> sorry a, and i talked too long that's, that's <laughs> a great question
0: um it's if you look at it now i mean like i said before it's funny because you can make fun of the nazis and i'm always down <laughs> to making fun of the nazis and making them look stupid and You know, it's almost 80 years old. Um, Well, I guess technically it is because it filmed in 41.
2: Yeah, so Um, the production of the film is at least 80 years old.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that through you, I became a big Carol Lombard fan. And the more I would dig into her and her movies and who she is as a person. In fact, after, since I just finished my Cary Grant book, I did get a new Carol Lombard book called screwball, which was written in the seventies. So I'm really kind of interested to read it.
2: Ooh, um, interesting.
0: And you know, it, to me, it's funny. And then even though she died 80 years ago, and I mean, even someone who I love like Cary Grant, he died almost 40 years ago. You, you, there's still like this sense with her that her she's unfulfilled. Um, Cause she's, she died when she was 33. Yep. So to me, the legacy of the film is you're seeing one of the greatest movie stars of all time at the top of her game playing the straight man, but getting in funny lines in the backdrop of a horrific event, which is the invasion of Poland. But for some magical alignment of the stars it's really funny um you i only knew of jack benny through uh, your love of him and i would watch uh, his his show and i you know i really got into it when i because uh, i'm gonna I, i've already pitched a couple more ideas to you being back on your show as you know the universal monsters and yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I really want to do an irene dunn episode
2: Yes, because, that's that's not even a question. That's going to happen because I love I, Irene Dunn is my
0: favorite Golden Era actress. But you go down the the hole for Jack Benny and stuff, and in this, you kind of forget that it's Jack Benny at points because he's he's really good in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're really you're immediately sucked back into his amazing comedic talent when he's playing Colonel Earnhardt and he's he doesn't what's great about him and I I don't know if you we've kind of talked about this but in that scene he can only do so much as Earnhardt and his ability to be exacerbated scared confident and funny is unmatched it's it gives you this anxiety while you watch him with uh, <laughs> Professor Selinski. Like you have
2: this—I I don't know how to describe it. Really, Zach, it's—it's—it's—it's uh, it's it's, it's, um, it's natural. It's, a, it's natural anxiety. It's natural. It's very much like, tense. It's tense. Like
0: yeah, it, it's a—it's a showcase for who Jack Benny is.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Um, to answer your question in a really long way. <laughs> because it's a really deep question to me because I'm a Carol Lombard fan first, uh, thanks to you.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, like I, I feel like I'm watching a career that's unfulfilled, even though she made 70 movies and she's a legend. I'm not saying that she didn't have a fulfilling career.
2: Right. But it's, uh, it's, it's different because it was so cut, cut so short. Yeah. And, and, you know, especially you talked
0: about it, you know, her, efforts raised the most money in a single day for World War II. So it's 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 kind of brutal to think about someone who's so talented and taken so young. And around that time it's not just her. You know, I I love Buddy Holly. He died too in 59 at like 27 and Mm -hmm. or maybe younger. I can't remember 23 or Patsy Klein, you know, those plane crashes take so many celebrities around that time and
2: john denver even as far into john, the 90s yeah
0: john denver and i so to me this is a culmination of a career of carol lombard's that is amazing she you just get transfixed by her on screen i i, I just adore the woman and um not being as well versed in jack benny as you are
1: mm-hmm.
0: but just watching him in this kind of blew my mind just because I've, I've seen him, you know, be really silly and I've seen him, um, you know, being the world's worst violin player. And I, but to me, this performance of his is so unique. And I don't know, like I said, that one scene where he's, you feel everything that Jack Benny can do is in one scene. Mm Mm-hmm. And it adds this palpable tension to a scene that's already filled with tension because it's funny and it's a World War II thriller about spies, and you don't expect it.
2: Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's completely un, un, uh, unprecedented what the film yeah, ends up
0: and doing. Yeah. I knew about the film. I mean, I like movies, so <laughs> you'd be a damn fool to not know about the movie. Right. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. But to actually enjoy it and sit down and watch it is pretty great. The only bummer is, is you can't find the Blu-ray for some reason right
2: now. Oh, so Uh, so did you end up watching it via like Hulu and such or? No, I
0: watched it on HBO max. Okay. But the good news is it's the criterion, um, 4k scan of it. So it looked pretty great. I mean, there's some streaming issues with it, but Overall, it looked incredible, yeah um,
2: it, it's um so with the criterion um it is available on criterion's website from last I checked um but amazon, I don't know if Amazon's just having trouble getting things in stock, but um but I mean, Ryan, I mean, full disclosure i'm gonna find a copy for you, and I'm gonna get it to you, but anyway, um this isn't the same thing as the Susie situation. this is one where I'm like, no, you need this on your fucking shelf, but um. <laughs> Because Susie died young. Yeah. Susie Su- Su- w- is a film that actually we should talk about, not because it's amazing, sure. but because of how much shit we went through to try to find this fucking thing. Well,
0: I mean, you eventually did it, but I. It's,
2: a, yeah, it's, it's the it's, stupidest um, journey one could take. <laughs> yeah.
0: But it's complete. Oh, yes, you know, exactly. I always, I always uh, balk about getting um, Alice in Wonderland on Blu ray. Uh, The Cary Grant version, so I have his films. Because I pre-ordered Merrily We Go to Hell. And that movie, I don't remember being that great. But it also could be that I streamed it on YouTube because it's the only place I could find it. Ah, Um, okay. So, of course, I'm going to get it. But I was also, when I was reading, I, I guess Cary Grant only did the voice and he never was actually on set as a mock turtle so i might just not get that one
2: Um, Yeah, maybe maybe just maybe you know every every actor we know today has to do a voiceover role that we're not particular. like i i enjoy alec baldwin but i'm not going to watch the boss baby i'm just not gonna do it (laughs) like i i have i have i have limits yeah so to
0: answer your question again i love this film um i miss carol lombard in fact, I'm such a nerd that every time I see a movie with her, I do get a little, uh, a little tear comes down because mm-hmm. like, oh man, I mean, everybody dies, but I don't know. It's just something about her that just tugs at my heartstrings.
2: I, I'll, uh, um, I'll, I actually know that's more than appropriate because every time I watch this movie and like, and, I, and I've, I've been vocal about this. This is my, this is my, fo- my, my, I believe it's my fourth favorite film of all time. Cause it's uh, my, my top five is Jackie <laughs> Brown. Casablanca Zodiac to be or not to be in Halloween uh, John Carpenter's Halloween um, and uh, this film whenever I watch it a couple things happen is one when I see Lombard I do get teary eyed because I'm aware that this is her last performance but then I kind of stop because then I'm just enjoying what she's doing to add to the film um, the other portion of it is that it's a film that if I think about it through the context of what my sense of humor has ended up becoming, because Ryan, you've you've known me for years, I have a couple of different modes, and one of them is you know absurdism and sat and spoof and satire and um like Mel Brooksian type affair. Like I, mm-hmm. you, you know that I'm like when 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 Carl Reiner died, what was my first reaction? Going like, oh, the man who interviewed the two thousand year old man is dead. Like. <laughs> Which is not an unfair, you know, thing to praise Carl Reiner for. He's one of it's one of the one of the many great things he did. But my I didn't get into Brooks as heavily as I did until after seeing something like To Be or Not To Be. And it didn't connect with me immediately because To Be or Not To Be to me was a Jack Benny movie, but the movie's sense of humor about how to treat the Nazi menace. I think prepared me for a movie like The Producers when I ended up seeing it because The Producers does not pull any punches. You can watch that movie today and that movie feels, like to be or not to be, it feels 10 times as audacious as anything you'll ever see. The fact that there's a musical number called Springtime for Hitler only happens because Lubitsch does it first. And so this movie prepares me for a sense of humor that ends up really... Giving me a groundwork for how i've uh, looked at the world, and the the thing with Jack on it is that there's a couple of things one is it's another reason to watch a jack Benny thing um, and jack's humor i've been vocal about it on episode nine, but it's jack's ta- jack Jack taught me that it's okay to be imperfect and he taught me how uh, you can laugh at yourself and self-deprecate a little bit. You know, like, I mean, I have self-esteem issues, as you know, but, you know, we, but when we make fun of it on Real Nerds, you know, we're having fun with with that kind of thing. And it, I, the one of the reasons why I love the persona and texted Brad going like, can I still be the loser in the group? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, it's a nice release to be kind of self-aware and self-reflexive if possible. Yeah, you should never take
0: yourself too seriously. Exactly, yeah. You yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah,
2: and it's <laughs> and it's like breaking down that barrier of just like you know, like you know, we all like if you can't laugh at your own mistakes, then you you have too much pomposity to exist. Is, is kind of the way I think of it. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, even Robert Stack, who we didn't talk about too much, but we, let's 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 give him a little bit of praise here because he he is uh, an actor who ended up he he actually has quite a bit of a history behind him because he's. He's actually, uh, uh, he he works in World War II films and such. He's in The Mortal Storm. It's where he wins a lot of acclaim. Um, He plays a young man who joins the Nazi party in that movie, and it's a great drama role for him. And then post-World War II, where he served as an aerial gunnery officer and a gunnery instructor for the U.S. Navy, he returns to movies. He goes back to A-movies eventually with things like The High and the Mighty. Uh, and then- <laughs> yep, exactly. And <laughs> airport. baseball, come on. Yep, and airport and baseball. I'm getting to that because um, after The Untouchables and such, he goes down the same route that Leslie Nielsen does with comedy. And something funny about Robert Stack in something like Air- Airplane, um, he kind of does s- things that Jack does where he plays a straight kind of a character in a comedic sense, which is the intent of airplane is treat the material seriously, but it will come off silly. That's the point of basketball or not basketball. I'm sorry. Airplane. Um is yeah. kind of that, but also basketball's, <laughs> basketball's in your face. Yeah. Ba- ba- yeah. Basketball is <laughs> very, very silly on its nose. Um, but the other thing is he began ho- so hosting the show unsolved mysteries in 1987, which, you know, I, I think the, like the benefit of something like unsolved mysteries is that it very much Does, keeping the consciousness like this idea of like when you see a personality or an actor like that and you get interested in them eventually you'll start digging into their careers and you start realizing that they had this whole other history behind them i think robert stack in himself is kind of an unsolved mystery as a whole because when you start digging back into it, you realize, oh, he was an an Oscar-nominated actor for written, the, written on the Wind? Like, he was in a Jack Benny movie? Like, there's so many things you pick up on. Uh, so I kind of like that a movie like this is an extension of those deep dives that we love to do as film fans. Um, and as far as Jack is concerned, you know, I think that this film perfectly portrays where he could have been as an actor and Ryan, I was going to, the last question I was going to ask you is one that being that this is the first Jack Benny movie you've seen, it's kind of a two-parter is like, first off, would you ever be interested in watching another movie with him? Given the fact that I've told you that most of them are good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I think there, I think there's merit into him no matter what, because of who he is as a performer. I, I don't,
2: I mean... <laughs> I think the one you'll I like is George Washington Slept Here because it's very yeah, much and Mr. Blank
0: just... watching another one with him because maybe I like Legends anyways. Yeah. If there is any redeeming qualities. I mean, I watched 26 Abbott and Costello films, <laughs> you know, for the Chow Factory
2: yeah, release. That, that box set, yeah.
0: <sighs> it, it's...
2: Most of the films are funny. Um,
0: some of them aren't very good, but there's always... That uh, safety life vest of Abbott Costello. Yeah. So I can find good things in something if I like the performer. If yeah. that makes any sense. Oh, I, I absolutely. I, of course, yeah.
2: yeah, and actually, and I'll and I'll say that we will all at some point as a group watch The Horn Blows at Midnight. Not necessarily because of it it being a Jack Betty movie, but it's just it's a kind of insane movie that I love watching. Um, and, uh, as we talked about it on our panel, like everybody on the in the panel loves that movie just because it's a blast of a time to watch. Um, but, uh, and it's not as bad as people give it credit for, but it is, it's not a movie that serves Jack properly. Um, but, uh, there's a, there's an article I want to promote for this, um, before asking the, the final question, there's an article about how to film Jack Benny by Steven Weiner. Steven Weiner, Weiner is a writer who wrote for people like Letterman and he wrote an article for Criterion.com and I've told him on Criterion how much this article means to me is that he summarizes that the reason Jack didn't work on film is because he, his comedy is based off of reaction and that live environment, that studio audience and Ryan's watched the Irene Dunn episode of the Benny program with Vincent Price and um, uh, Gregory Ratoff and you know there's there's a live element to it with the audience where when jack tells a joke when when jack plays off of a comedy scene he'll look to the camera he'll react or he'll do long pauses and the audience interaction is important with that on film you don't have that on film you are on a set without an audience and the audience will be in the theater and it's hard to gauge when the laugh is going to happen and reaction comedy was what jack was best at and so to be or not to be doesn't ask him to do what he's doing on, on radio. It asks him to play a version of that character that is more rooted in reality. And that, that leads to my final question, Ryan, we watched a film where he has a lot of humanity and traits of humanity and at its best and worst. I'm going to make the argument that if Jack were in films today, he'd be in like mumblecore movies or like Apatow-esque movies or dramedies where, he'd be asked to play something a little bit more subtler and not so broad um, because he knew how to tap into tricky human behavior. And I think it would have played off for him way better.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't disagree at all. I think, (laughs) I think his humor might even be more appreciated now um, because of who he is. And how he performs, because yep. you don't need to be so out there and so on the spot to be a great comedian. You know, I'll bring this all the way back to Cary Grant. He said the same thing. He said the hardest thing he had to learn about going from vaudeville and um, a performing yeah. troupe was, you know, it, on those or when you're performing in front of an audience that the reaction is instantaneous. So, you know that what you've done has worked. Yeah. And when he was on The Awful Truth, he struggled with Leo McCary so much because it was a lot of improvisation and there was no reaction. You know, he didn't know what take to do, he didn't know how to um, act in front of a camera, but he ended up mastering it. And someone like Jack Benny, who Although he's in movies, I think his bread and butter is always going to be radio and live studio audience. Yeah. Because he thrives on that reaction. Even in um you know, in to be or not to be, when he is really interacting with people, I mean, there's I don't know if there's a better comedic actor. He's looking for applause every time he's
2: every time he's saying anything, he's you know, looking that's a great for aim
0: for uh, your Jack Benny book, looking for applause. But it's
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking for applause oh wow i i well we talked about it i am a fan of yeah. the title of it you can't film jack just because it's yeah it's a it's nice great. dig it pretentious like, <laughs>
0: but yeah it's i think you're right i think nowadays i think he would be in um dramedies like maybe like eighth grade or you know
2: yeah yeah
0: Um something along the lines of that where he's still gonna be funny but it's not that i'm a silly out there it's, funny it's
2: not broad like an adam sandler which is a valid yeah. form that we've discussed like, you know adam sandler is actually i've re-estimated him a lot more in the last couple of years as like you know one of those actors that we don't need we can't be discrediting because of the like the last couple of years of output apart from well it, yeah, he has a know. formula and it
0: works i'm a, i'm a big proponent you know that of adam sandler i think yeah. he's funny yeah but, absolutely yeah uh there is an art to it, and there's an art to being Jack Benny. It's yeah. not you know, Jack Benny is a comedian, but uh, you know, it, it was hit on the head by the director. You're not you're <laughs> you're you're, not, you're playing the comedian. You're not actually a comedian, and it's that's it's really deep and philosophical. Yeah. But he's right. It's because what is at the end of the day, what is jack benny doing he's playing for the laugh but how does he get the laugh
2: he he gets it with a character that was established all that exactly. time by by harry Kahn Bozberg, borrow Bar- and boulogne uh tackaberry josephsberg parent and Balzer. Um, and i think a lot
0: of times uh especially in early hollywood as i dive dive deeper and deeper into golden age hollywood which i've always been a fan i know i've mentioned it hundreds of times yeah but i used to watch TCM AMC all the time growing up, but as you kind of go behind what's the studio system is, people would get pigeonholed into certain roles. Yeah, and it would be really hard for them to get outside of it. So no matter what Jack Benny did, I think at this time he was always going to be put into those roles yeah. because they they would say, I mean, whether it's you know Mayor or Lamille, they're just going to say, hey, you. You're funny, and you play the violin. What? How can we work that into this movie with Faye Ray? I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff out there, but like that'd
2: be great if he was in a movie with Faye Ray. I'd watch the hell out of that movie. I don't care how bad. it is. I mean? that's, that's, how, <laughs> that's how. the studios thought back then. It's
0: oh yeah. How can I? Um, because you mentioned this film was written by two people with an idea from Jack Benny. You know, or from
2: as I, uh, Lubitsch, Yeah.
0: Yeah. As I dig deeper and deeper into Hollywood at this time a lot of films were put in like, you know, Hitchcock would have an idea for a film and then he would go to a couple writers and they would write it. And the reason Hollywood would have two writers is because, well, this one writer is better at mystery and this writer is better at dialogue. So we'll combine them, have the writer with mystery and dialogue come together and, oh man, you have North by Northwest. Yeah, exactly.
2: And also um, Casablanca is the best example of that because like the Epstein's uh, are good with their dialogue and their humor. And then you have Koch and, The others coming in with the love story angles and like this is uh the i think like with with to be or not to be especially you know you have this combination of several factors but Lubitsch is primarily the one dictating what he wants he's very much a producer director in that respect and like as far as benny being pigeonholed yeah absolutely in fact like a lot of what Hollywood was trying to do was synergize and get mileage out of his radio career, which they ended up doing with other shows like great Gildersleeve and Fibbert McGee and Molly at the time. And so there's like this Bob hopes, the only one who transcends it because Bob hopes persona on film actually is stronger than his persona on radio. If you think about it, because he's on radio, he doesn't have the same thing Jack does or even George and Gracie did where Bob is a coward, but it's so broad that you can kind of stick the coward role anywhere. And then whereas Jack, he had like several different qualities about him that it's just like, well, if we ask him to do one, that'll be enough. And it's like, no, you kind of need to hit all or virtually none of it all. And I think like Lubitsch taps into this rare middle ground where he's like, no, I want you to pull off things I know you can do, but I'm going to simplify it. I'm going to simplify it to the hammery and then I want to find the emotion that comes from that, not the laughs that come from that. He's not yeah. asking for humor. He's asking for humanity. And it's something that Jack doesn't get to have in movies for the most part. Um, yeah, and
0: it's, it's something that when you tap into it, it's magical. I mean, to be or not, not to be is a great film, it really should be seen by everybody. And I, I think if, cause you know, I, I had a preconceived idea of who Jack Benny is okay. and you see him go through being Jack Benny, but also being the hero of the film. Yep. And it's, <laughs> it's reluctant, but it's cause it's also, he's pissed about his wife's affair, but
2: again, he's inconvenienced. <laughs> it's,
0: uh, the inconvenient spy. Um,
2: <laughs> oh, that's a movie I want with anybody.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. It's so, yeah, again, to answer your question in a really long way, of course I'd watch, other jack may and of course i i think that he would probably excel in stuff from the coen brothers nowadays i think he'd excel in stuff uh from paul ws anderson you know i think or paul thomas anderson you mean yeah yeah
2: paul thomas anderson oh my god jack benny and resident evil
0: what the hell Um, does
2: that look like
0: It'd be like a supercomputer or something. He, just, um,
2: he goes up to Alice, goes up to him. He goes, my name is Alice and he's a zombie. And he goes, well, and then she just shoots him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think you're right. Yep. Yeah, no. Yeah. And um, thank you very much again for sitting down with the movie and talking about it. And um, you're, you well, know, you, I've, I've been wanting to get you to watch this movie for five years. You've done it. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And Ryan, I've got a surprise for you for your reward for this. How would you like to talk about showboat on your next appearance? I'd
0: be more than happy to.
2: All right. Then we could talk about showboat or we could talk about any, uh, I, actually, you know what? Before we Can do. We do showboat be, and my favorite wife. <laughs> that's, that's what I was going to say before we do, we could do either showboat and my favorite wife, or we could do one or the other. I think we should do both to just make it an Irene Dunn affair. Like we did with yeah. Carrie. I would love
0: to do an Irene Dunn day.
2: Yeah, we'll do the. Well, Dunn days is is ahead on the Ballyhoo review. Um, And and for anybody who's wanting more information on To Be or Not To Be, go seek it out on Criterion. It's a movie you should acquire in any form you can get, even if it's digital. More than likely on the Criterion channel, you're going to find these special features that are contained in the disc. But if you can get a physical copy, this is the only... Jack Benny film that has a 1080p transfer from a 2K scan done back of, back in the mid 2010s. So I would check it out if you can. But this is going to be it for the Ballyhoo review. You can find us more on our social media websites. Ryan, we know where we can find you. We can find you That's every right. week on a show that we're yeah. gonna we're gonna. We're, we're recording this now. In a few hours, we're going to be recording on Willy's Wonderland, which I still have yet to watch today.
0: <laughs> oh, shit. Um, yeah, uh, but I, the only plug I will give is I'm using my own official Twitter handle again <laughs> after <laughs> after nine years. I got it nine years ago, and I had two tweets. And then I decided, I was like, you know what? I'll open up mine just so I can reshare my stuff from my real twitter which is real nerds yeah
2: but... <laughs> it, 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 I, the moment i saw cool frost followed you i'm like oh shit he's here <laughs> yeah. you, you've always been on the real nerd twitter but now <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I i'm very
0: active on our facebook and twitter but i started doing my own twitter feed as well because i'm always on twitter anyways and then that's a way i can share other things as well
2: yeah. And then so, what? so yeah. And please look for Cary Grant, your Cary Grant article. Um, so look for Ryan's Cary Grant article on the Real Nerds Podcast page at realnerdspodcast.com. Oh,
0: and uh, you know what, Zach? I, I'll like, reveal it exclusively on your podcast. Uh oh. I am currently working on like four articles, but I also have one that is going to be dropping really soon. And it's still classic cool. So it's the films of Cary Grant but instead of ranking them and doing like a little blurb of each one, I will have a full review of every one of his films coming soon. What? Oh, <laughs> so, um, because I uh, I've been doing a lot of research as you know, I just finished um, my latest biography on him. And then I also, as I was went down the rabbit hole of Amazon, I found a book that was published in Yale and it's called the films of Cary Grant. And that should be here really soon. And it has all his films, the co-stars and critical analysis from the time the films were released. Ooh. So, um, I'm interested to check that book out. I've already written a couple of the articles, but I got to finish all my other shit. That I'm doing. Um, <laughs> you've got, crypt- you've got I, some I, stream I factory clips to give us. <laughs> I know if I actually got paid to do this, you know, um, But, uh, yeah, so look for Classic Cool, a 72-part articles of each of Cary Grant's films. And I'm going to do it chronologically, so I will start with his first film. Um, I will not start with Singapore Sue, which he has, like, a little cameo in, which is his actual first on-screen appearance, I guess, for lack of a better word.
2: That doesn't count, Ryan. I wasn't prominently featured.
0: (laughs) But... If you're wondering, like, man, what is Cary Grant's first film? And I it's it's a question I need answered so bad. Um, I can tell you. It's called This Is the Night, and he plays an Olympic javelin thrower. So um <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yes. It's not it's not that the idea it's is goofy so much, it's just like Cause he knew- no, it's yeah, and it makes sense.
0: It's like this lady's trying to leave town with this old dude uh-huh. and Carrie Grant's her husband, and you go, wait, what? <laughs> Carrie Grant's the most attractive guy ever, but
2: that's how the I film um- <laughs> actually. Here's another one we will want to- want you on for is Broadway Melody of nineteen thirty six because. It's a Jack Benny movie, but let's put that aside for a second. Robert Taylor and Eleanor Powell are in the movie. And the whole movie is Robert Taylor doesn't want Eleanor Powell around him. And I'm like, this is the stupidest concept I've ever heard in my life.
0: (laughs) So, yeah. So hopefully people will enjoy my 72-part series, Classic Cool.
2: Yeah. And actually, I'll announce it on here. Uh, Ryan and I have been in this discussion for, I want to say, about the past two months now. Um I'm going to be writing a book about Jack Penny's film career. Um, Right (laughs) now, the working title is you can't film Jack. Um, Basically the thesis of the book is how does a film career fail to take off? Um, We have a lot of instances of the, in the modern era, like this is not to down on Taylor Kitsch because I think he's a talented guy, but Taylor Kitsch has kind of never been able to find film stardom. (laughs) And uh uh as we've seen is like he'll be putting big blockbusters and it doesn't work and like so i want to get down to the subject of like well how come we didn't get jack benny's film career and we've kind of talked about it before here today and also on the man about town episode but i want to expand on it and also talk about comedy directors from the era that you may not have heard of but until next time boys and girls we're a little late so good night folks (laughs) This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.